welcome. Thanks. <laughs> Hi. So today we have Amani and jo- Jody. Jody and, <laughs> and Allison. Awesome. We're going to talk about neuropathic pain today. We're going to continue on with our case with Mrs. Lee, our 56-year-old female with metastatic breast cancer with bony mets to her sorry, bony metastases to her uh, spine. Um, And she was doing well with uh, morphine content, 15 milligrams BID, but comes back to us a few weeks later complaining more of a burning component to her pain with some uh, paresthesias to her right leg and buttock region. And so we need to address that today. So... (laughs) I guess we wanted to start off with the definition of neuropathic pain. And we often look at the International Association for the Study of Pain, or IASP, definition. And they define it as pain caused by a lesion or disease of the somatosensory nervous system. So we can talk about all the various types of lesions um, or diseases, but you know we can categorize that as, I think more simply, as non-cancer and cancer. I don't know, Alison, if you want to take a stab at that? Sure. Um, I think, you know, in general, if you're uh, just starting out in medicine, you're going to see examples of neuropathic pain, uh, most commonly diabetic neuropathy or postherpetic neuralgia. Those are probably the two most common yeah. ones you'll see. Yeah. Um, in the world of cancer, you can see it as a peripheral neuropathic pain, which can be caused by certain kinds of chemotherapy, or you could see it um, as a lesion in the nervous system. So for example, um, with our lady, Mrs. Lee, uh, likely at this point, if she's getting burning pain down the back of her leg, uh, as you would know, that would be sciatica. And so likely she's having uh, some pressure on the nerve roots as they exit the spine um, in L3, 4, 5. Yeah, definitely. And we can pin that down even further by looking at the exact dermatomes that are affected. But um, I think that's great. I think the the first question is, how do we diagnose nerve pain? It sounds pretty obvious in our case. Mm -hmm. You know, generally, we think of nerve pain as having a burning quality to it. So whenever you ask a patient about the quality of their pain, and they characterize it as burning, and then we often talk about a lancinating quality, which means a shooting pain, that is over top of that chronic burning uh, sense that they have, then they might have some uh, numbness associated with that pain. And then again, we can either find a lesion or a problem in the nervous system that makes it consistent that it would be neuropathic pain. Yeah, I agree. So like more technically, we might call it dysesthetic pain when it's that burning pain and the hypoesthesia, the numbness. Sometimes you actually need to do a focused neurologic exam well that would be the ideal actually is to do a focused neurologic exam to pick up things like hypoesthesia Uh, although sometimes it can be hyperesthesia as well so you get this sort of derangement of of the way that they perceive normal stimuli and then also some people complain of tingling or paresthesias as well Um, but what was in we talked about the different categories of pain early on in the first episode but just so our early learners can understand you can have two different types of pain happening at the same time. So in this case, we have that bony somatic pain, but also we have this neuropathic component as well. Yeah, and neuropathic pain gets its own podcast because it's a really challenging kind of pain. Um, It doesn't usually respond to opioids. 
the way a lot of um, somatic pain does. Yeah, definitely. Um, people call it a poor prognosticator for you know optimal management of pain. So you're more likely to have, unfortunately, less well-controlled pain when there's a neuropathic component. Mm. So Jody, if Amani and I have made that diagnosis of neuropathic pain, what do you think as a pharmacist about the categories of drugs we could use? <laughs> Let me just check my cheat sheet. <laughs> A lot of times when we're talking about medications used to treat neuropathic pain, we we call them adjuvants. And, you know, like, where did that term come from? Yeah, what is an adjuvant, Imani? Yeah, so, <laughs> Dictionary, Imani. Yeah, so an adjuvant. So a lot of times in medicine, historically, a drug was developed for one specific purpose and may work for that specific purpose or maybe a little bit lackluster in effect for that specific purpose, but then we've repurposed it for another reason. And there's a lot of examples of that when we look at treatment options for neuropathic pain. So we'll get into like more specific examples of that. Mm -hmm. I think our most classic example of that would be a gabapentin. Mm -hmm. um, gabapentin is still trying to find its way in life, I think. It has not found its purpose. Um, it does, well, I suppose it does, depending on who you talk to, uh, it, it has found its purpose in neuropathic pain. It was originally... Um, developed as an, as an epileptic medication, and I don't know if anybody is still on gabapentin to treat their mm. epilepsy. No. Nope. Um, but along with gabapentin or gabapentinoids, um, there's also TCAs and SNRIs that would be considered first line um, for neuropathic pain. Yeah, so what do those stand for, TCAs? TCA is a tricyclic... Antidepressant. Antidepressant. Yeah, I was trying yeah, to think yeah. of the A. Uh, they're the really, really old antidepressants mm -hmm. if you're thinking your amitriptylines your nortriptylines mm -hmm. um yeah those are the two that come to my mind uh kind yeah. of the main two that we would use yeah and snris are serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors mm -hmm. so that would be you know they're originally designed for, for um as antidepressants mm -hmm. but then we're also found in in studies um to be beneficial in certain types of neuropathic pain. So uh, we talk about diabetic neuropathy as well as chemotherapy-induced neuropathic pain. There's some evidence there. Yeah, SNRIs, the two I would think of would be like a duloxetine and a venlafaxine. Those mm -hmm. are the two that I think of. So what are we going to start with with Mrs. Lee? Come into the office. How old did we say she was? 56. 56, Okay. Uh, the reason I ask is TCAs seem to be quite effective, but we have to be quite careful with their anticholinergic effects um, and cardiac effects. At that age, I wouldn't worry as much about it as somebody older. Well, yeah, let's TCAs? talk about TCAs. Um, their number needed to treat is somewhere between two and three. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. only two or three people need to take these uh, in order to have one person respond. But, um, but big but. I took a TCA uh, once, and <laughs> man, I was so dizzy and so tired. I was at work, and it was really difficult. Did you get a lot of dry mouth? Mm, I don't do we, recall the dry mouth as much as uh, falling asleep in a lunchtime round. Oh, so I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I think you're not going to see them used all that often, mostly because people um, just cannot uh, manage the side effects. But if we are going to try them, how would you dose them? I mean, them just online? to be devil's advocate on that point, I've mm. used it a few times. It has been on a younger population that's been, um, like, um, 
I'm not saying younger than you. I'm saying younger than my you know <laughs> average patient, but has maybe more saying. maybe more physiologic reserve. And um, often they have issues with sleep, mm-hmm. and so I think about it in that context and dose it at nighttime. Yeah, we could certainly use that to our benefit. Mm-hmm. So, um, which one would you use, and uh, what dose? Ah, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I like to use nortriptyline because my teaching. Now, this is just like what I've been taught, and my experience is that it possibly has less of that anticholinergic side effect profile, mm. and I do start at about 10 milligrams at yeah. HS. Yeah. So, how about yourself? Would you agree with that? If Me you were too, to pick absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, if the person's tolerating it, we'd try to go up to 20. You can do levels, but in general, you know, I think we go up to 20. I've seen people as high as 50 milligrams, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and then... You know that's pretty much a trial. Yeah, and you're like you're increasing that on a daily basis or weekly basis because I'm thinking more weekly is what I would do I would as tolerated. Sure. Yeah, 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 and it is going to take some time for them to have an effect as well. Uh, generally, it's in the order of a week or more at mm-hmm. least before you're going to see an effect. Yeah, and as for those side effects, I mean, my experience has been that a lot of my patients have become. A acclimated to them a little bit over time so that's another thing to consider but I agree with if you're looking at somebody who's frail multimorbidity or like lots of other medicines a lot of the medicines we use in palliative care have anticholinergic side effects and they're QT prolonging so you know it's all about the context I think yeah for sure what about gabapentinoids I'd say this is the most common family of medication that's used for Neuropathic. Yeah. Pain. Would you guys agree? Yeah. I'd agree. Yeah. And how do you use it, Amani? Really? Yeah. On. So, I mean, in Alberta, we previously only had one type of gabapentinoid covered by um, our palliative blue cross. And so that was actually uh, a big reason for me to select gabapentin because that was the only one that was covered, unless somebody had private health uh, drug insurance. And in that case, I would often, depending on, again, age, frailty, comorbidities, functional status, all of it, I would start as low as 100 milligrams at night uh, versus 100 milligrams three times a day, mm-hmm. somebody who I thought could tolerate a little bit more of a higher dose. But then I would counsel people to please be patient with me because I don't think you're even going to say, can tell me if this is going to work or not until I get to doses of about 600 milligrams three times a day. And that can take you know, at least six weeks because I'm titrating on a weekly basis. Weekly. Do you ever go faster than that? I have yeah. on occasion, but to, I mean, on an outpatient basis, I'm typically doing that on a weekly basis. Yeah, for sure. On our inpatients, I don't even see that far, right? Yeah, Often exactly. Often we've handed over to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I go up by 300 milligrams every three days. Yeah, that's, I know I've seen that before. Yeah, that's kind and of I think I that was made up mostly because it's easy to remember. Mm-hmm. Yes. Three and three. <laughs> yes, okay. Um, but I, and I agree with the money, I go up. I try to make it to 600 milligrams TID as the minimum dose where I'm going to decide with the patient whether it's been effective or not. Um, I think in reality, it's really difficult because, you know, you often ask patients uh, whether the gabapentin they're taking is working. And because it's been titrated up so slowly um, and other things have happened, they're never really sure what gabapentin is doing for Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. So then the other option 
is pregabalin that we've talked about, and luckily that's covered now by mm-hmm. our palliative blue cross provincially. Yeah, I have to say I'm a much bigger fan of pregabalin than I am of gabapentin. I usually come from a convenience logistics side of things mm-hmm. um, where I'm often thinking about the patients and how many meds they're taking and how often they have to take them, um, what their side effects are, all those kinds of things. Gabapentin is one of those where they're taking multiple capsules multiple times a day and all of them are very large capsules. So pregabalin we can go usually at most twice a day um, and it's just more convenient for the patient. Evidence-wise, <laughs> you guys? I don't know if there's any evidence to compare gabapentin versus pregabalin. I'm not aware of that. Um, but I think just exactly as you said, it's um, you can get to an effective dose a lot faster. Yeah, and, and it's easier for them. The maximum frequency of dosing is twice a day versus four times a day, potentially, with gabapentin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so pregabalin can be as simple as 75 twice a day, 150 twice a day. And then you can go up to 300. You can, yeah. I don't know if yeah. the effectiveness is um, evident in that one. But. Yeah. Again, I, I think uh, if you're not getting the effect at 150, there's certainly, if, if you look at the you know the monograph, they say you can go up to 300 twice a day. And mm-hmm. Bob's your uncle. So. <laughs> um, much easier to titrate. And now that it's covered, I think we're all keener on it. Yeah. Um, also better with renal clearance, right, Jody? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. And then SNRIs, so our serotonin, norepinephrine, reuptake inhibitors. I think the most common one we use is duloxetine with the brand name Cymbalta. Um, again, evidence for diabetic neuropathy here and potentially chemotherapy-induced uh, neuropathic pain as well. And in my experience, and I've learned this from one of our psychiatry colleagues who actually does a lot of palliative psychiatry, um, and she often will consider uh, duloxetine when there's comorbid mood disorders, like mm-hmm. anxiety and depression are definitely features, like an illness adjustment with anxiety or depressive features. Absolutely. And also neuropathic pain. So it's sort of a two-for-one approach in that case. Mm-hmm. Should we talk a little bit about side effects? So these three medicines we talked about, gabapentinoids, TCAs, and SNRIs, this is, this is what we would consider through the Canadian Society of Pain to be first-line treatment options for um, neuropathic pain. This is caveat here. They're often talking about non-cancer neuropathic pain, but we, it's kind of the best we have. We take the evidence where we can get it. Yeah. <laughs> but should we talk about side effects of these most commonly used Mm-hmm. Yeah, so gabapentinoids. Drowsiness, for sure, at first. Mm-hmm. Luckily, they do tend to acclimate, as you've said before. Mm-hmm. Um, to that one, you talked about how we do have to worry about renal clearance um, and yeah. dose accordingly. I've also often find people complain about ataxia, or sorry, like sort of feeling unsteady on their feet. Yeah, and dizziness, I find. Yeah. Yeah. And um, also cognitive, like just feeling foggy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which they can already be experiencing. Mm-hmm. So we're adding right. to it. Yeah. I think we kind of delved into the TCA's main side effects. Um, so the dry mouth, the constipation, all the anticholinergic typical things. Yeah, I, just, I tell patients everything's mm-hmm. going to be dry. Dry mouth, dry eyes, dry nose. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Your yeah. gut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then also the cognitive issues. Absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, falls risks as well with that mm-hmm. dizziness um, and drowsiness, in our, especially in our frail patients. Uh, SNRIs. I'd say somewhat similar to the gabapentins where drowsiness, dizziness, but usually they, they start to get used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think they're quite well tolerated. Mm-hmm. For the most and again, you know, the, the key is you start small. So with the deloxin, start at 30 and mm-hmm. then go up to 60. And you can go higher, but you can 60 go up to is 90. Your, yeah. yeah. Is your, um, and then one thing about all three of these is um, we try to titrate up. So then we have to titrate down if we ever decide we need to stop it or anything like that. Um, you're always looking at tapering those rather than cutting cold turkey because you're going to make your patient feel like crap. Mm-hmm. Fair. So um, let's say we put Mrs. Lee on pregabalin and we start at 75 twice a day, and after a week we increase her to 150 twice a day. And um, she comes back in a couple weeks and says, It's marginally better, but I'm still not comfortable. What would our second line mm-hmm. management for her neuropathic pain be? Well, according to this algorithm, it's tramadol and opioid analgesics. What do you guys think of that? So, yeah, so I think in our practice, I don't recommend tramadol very often. Alison, I don't know, do you talk about tramadol for neuropathic pain? Mm, not no. second line, no. Yeah. And then opioids, well, we already have Miss Lee on opioid analgesics. Um, I'll tell you what I do clinically often is I do think about methadone as an adjunct, mm-hmm. and that would be considered fourth line in that Canadian guideline that we're referring to. But in our palliative population, I find it helpful, especially if she's been struggling with this pain for more than three months, which I think at this point she's you mm-hmm. know, in that time zone. And that's because it's a more of that chronic pain picture. And I like the fact that I have an MDA antagonism. We can talk more about that at another time or, you know, but basically that N-methyl-D-aspartate antagonism helps with this kind of um, central sensitization that can happen with really chronic pain and so helps to amp down some of those hyperstimulatory signals in the central nervous system. So I like that. There's, you know, not a ton of evidence in the palliative literature, at least, that methadone is helpful for neuropathic pain, but it certainly has serotonergic and norepinephrine um, activity, and so you would think about it similar to an SNRI. Yeah, I'd say we definitely go to methadone prior to the fourth line. Yeah. Pronto. But low doses. <laughs> yeah, low doses. Twice a day. Like a 2.5 BID. Maximum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To start off with. So let's say she comes back, um, you've rotated her to methadone, and that may be another podcast, I think, talking about methadone, because there's lots of things to consider with methadone. Mm-hmm. Uh, she comes back, she's on the methadone, she's on pregabalin. Um, you're starting to make this pharmacist nervous over here. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's now you're used up. to it. <laughs> and she comes back to you and she says, my son, my son always the son he tells me <laughs> that i should just be using some marijuana what would you say to that amani 
me? I would say we say cannabis. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why do we say cannabis? What's what's up with that? I mean, I think you, you have a you have a great understanding of this probably better than I do. But I've learned, um, like within the last year only, really, I've learned that marijuana has kind of a political history where it was referring to it was a derogatory reference to Mexicans, and this was in the fifties, I want to say, when there was a big war on drugs or maybe later yeah Mm. no i think it was actually earlier earlier okay even earlier so when the american government was trying to have this big war on drugs and justify making cannabis illegal um they talked about you know the migrant workers coming from mexico that and tried to cast like a derogatory light on it Mm -hmm. and so it was maria and juan so marijuana yeah and so it actually Jeez. has nothing to do with the plant name. So we would go back to cannabis now to be more politically correct. Mm. Yeah. You see. <laughs> so um, what would you say to her, Imani, if, uh, if she says, you know, um, she's tried a number of drugs now and, you know, she's not quite where she wants to be and her son thinks it would be very good to try some uh, medical cannabis? I would say my personal opinion I wouldn't know how to dose this as I would dose other medicines because there's a lot of factors involved with cannabis. There's different components of different cannabis uh, plant species. And so the two most basic we look at, and we can get into this more at another time, Mm -hmm. THC and CBD, but there's also a whole other bunch of molecules. So I don't know how to dose it. Like the words... The, you, you oh, doing all of the oh other god ones. THC tetra tetrahydrocannabidiol I think so and CBD is just cannabidiol yeah, yeah. is that right and then what are the <laughs> other things there's terpenes like all the chaperone molecules yeah all kinds of other stuff so there's so much we don't know this is mother nature right this is not a synthetic molecule made in a lab this is a whole bunch of things in a plant (laughs) and so i just struggle with knowing how to dose that Mm -hmm. and i also and this is this is a bit of a generalization granted but a lot of my patients want to treat their pain so that they can engage in life more you know like have more meaningful memories and spend time with family maybe attend certain events and so i worry that with cannabis you often get this sort of like apathy syndrome if you're using it regularly the couch surfing syndrome where you kind of disconnect and don't really engage with people and i just worry that that's counter to what would give them the best quality of life so that's my piece yeah and i guess uh just to counter that um you know, if, if we look at numerous guidelines within Canada, there's actually uh, quoted as moderate level evidence for neuropathic pain. So um, the idea is that cannabinoids um, should be medically authorized for certain conditions. And neuropathic pain and cancer pain have been named as two of the conditions in uh, certainly the Canadian Family Physician uh, guidelines. So you know, if, if there is evidence, then why should we um, uh, throw out this um, possible group? I do understand what Amani's saying. There's over 200 varieties that are sold in Canada. So, um, you know, right there, uh, how do you make a, a prescription um, when you've got 200 to choose from? But that is for another day. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I would certainly consider cannabinoids um, as... Uh, third line and um, I think we also have um, some good evidence at our cancer center anyway that about 20% of our patients have tried cannabinoids 
within the past six months. Mm -hmm. uh, so your patient is already interested uh, in this drug and generally sees it as less um, of a problem than an opioid. Uh, so you're going to be fielding lots of questions about it and um, super interesting and we will talk about it more in another podcast. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. more to follow. Awesome. Fourth line? Yeah, so actually methadone does belong in the fourth line, to, uh, technically. Uh, but as I say, I think we maybe use it more as a second line in our palliative practice. Yeah, I think we move the methadone into the second line. <laughs> yeah. But other fourth line agents are um, other anticonvulsants that are actually used currently today versus the gabapentinoids. Um, so, for example, we look at carbamazepine. Um, we've also talked about topiramate and even lamotrigine. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's things like topical lidocaine and botulinum toxins mentioned, but I would say that none of us have really had great experience with topical lidocaine. No, we'll, we'll certainly try it, but I can't say I've ever seen a home run with it. Mm -hmm. It's one of those that will, will slap on because, yeah. you know, it's less, if, not low risk. Yeah, especially topical. And I find if there's any sort of, first of all, it has to be a super, very superficial type of neurobiology. Yes, exactly. And if there's any sort of um, uh, epidermal like barrier breakdown, mm. then I feel that people are often complaining of burning with topical lidocaine. Definitely, so yeah. It's a very specific situation and unfortunately sometimes causes intolerable burning. Yeah. And then um, botulinum toxin, like I say, it's interesting. I think it's an area that I'd like to learn more about. But we haven't used it a lot so far, anecdotally. And then topiramate, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine. Do you want yeah, to talk about that? Yeah, I had a bit of success with carbamazepine. Yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of us think of it more with neuropathic facial pain mm -hmm. um, because I'm sure most of our learners um, know about trigeminal neuralgia, and uh, carbamazepine is the first line drug um, suggested for trigeminal neuralgia. but it's a drug that uh, has a number of other side effects like neutropenia, so you have to be careful with it. And I think most of us certainly, you know, are talking about using it fourth line. Um, so if you're, you know, early in your medical practice, then you probably just want to uh, consult a specialist before you're moving to those fourth line drugs. Well, and the other thing with carbamazepine is the drug interactions. Mm. And you've probably already put the patient on methadone if mm. you're trying to treat very difficult neuropathic pain. And then adding on the carbamazepine, um, we're looking at the, the um, inducer in interaction. Yeah, and this is more rare, but I believe carbamazepine is one of the ones that are on the, you're on the lookout for like SJS, yeah. Stephen Johnson's toxic epidural necrolysis. So they're not super common, but it's there's little, definitely a burden. Yes, yeah, it's a little dirty is what I call yeah. it. A little dirty drug. <laughs> yeah. Dirty drug, yeah. it's a dirty drug. All right, and then topiramate, I mean, we do have colleagues that have used it and have anecdotally found benefit. I personally have not, unfortunately, I've unfortunately not found a lot of benefit with topiramate. People talk about feeling, again, the cognitive side effects and... It's the California drug. Loss of appetite. Yeah. California drug. It makes you dumb and skinny. <laughs> That's what I learned in school. Nice. I, I will never forget that. Um, and in our patients, 
We certainly don't want to make them skinny. <laughs> They're already feeling pretty skinny. Yeah. Well, they don't and want to lose their appetite anymore. After. No. <laughs> yeah. And we certainly don't want to make them feel foggier than, yeah. than what they already are. And so. its brand name is Topamax. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've also heard it called Dopamax. There you yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're all very mean to topiramate. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know if I've ever even seen it used, but it certainly wouldn't be my first choice with those side effects. Yeah. First choice even in the fourth line. So I think we should just sort of summarize. I think what we've decided for Mrs. Lee is that we are going to start off because of her neuropathic pain, which is characterized by burning and paresthesias, right? due to radiculopathic pain or sciatic pain, as, as Allison referred to it. We started off with pregabalin, and we titrated to what we thought was a reasonable dose at 150 milligrams twice a day. She tolerated it and maybe had a little bit of a benefit, but not, not a home run. And so then we decided to try a little bit of adjunct methadone. So we could try, say, 2.5 milligrams twice a day. And, you know, she did find some benefit with that. If she didn't, we would consider something like a methadone rotation, but that's a topic for another day as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the question is, would we take her off the pregabalin once we had her on the methadone? Because I am the de-prescribing pharmacist. I do not like a lot of drugs on mm. a patient. Yeah. A lot of pill burden, if you will. Yeah, what's your practice, Amani? Do you keep adding drugs for a difficult neuropathic pain patient, or do you take them away? You know, I think this is a common pitfall for us clinically, especially like in the inpatient setting where we're handing over to our colleagues a lot. Mm -hmm. And we often, perhaps if one of us stuck with that patient long-term, we would think more about de-prescribing things because we'd have tracked what worked and didn't. But it's a little bit harder when there's turnover of clinicians. So unfortunately, I do think we're adding on and forgetting to sort of do a med reconciliation as often as we should yep. is my feeling um it definitely if somebody says that they had no benefit whatsoever from a gabapentinoid i will taper them off slowly yeah but i've also anecdotally had situations where they said i'm not sure if it helped and only when i tapered it off did they realize that it was helping because their pain flared so yeah i'm a little bit wary of that too yeah sometimes it's easier to know when something was helpful after it's taken away than mm-hmm. when you gave it. As in, it's easier to detect pain than pain relief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, I would say my practice, but again, maybe with the new trendiness of deprescribing, it's it's probably not very popular anymore. But the way I speak to patients is with neuropathic pain, we've never found a magic bullet. And so we're really trying to find a cocktail of medications that are going to work on different receptors to help their pain. And so for that reason, I'm usually using a cocktail, as in numerous drugs, to help their pain. You know, eventually I feel that we do gain success, um, but, you know, I have no clinical trial to compare my current uh, uh, practice, which is adding drugs, um, compared to... Uh, taking drugs away and trying Um, something new yeah but I agree with Imani it's often difficult to take a drug away because the patient isn't really sure or you've been doing a few other things at the same time and they seem a little bit better Um, and it just seems a whole lot easier to add another drug than to take one away Mm, it feels more safe (laughs) (laughs) does it though yeah Yeah. is Um, it though yeah yeah um I think honestly for the most part it's um 
very patient driven as well. If you've got a patient who really hates taking their pills mm-hmm. or gets even gets really nauseous or overwhelmed or anything like that, mm-hmm. then I think you probably lean more towards trying to taper things off with their agreement and things like that. If they're just like, treat my pain, I don't care, you know, then of course then we deal with it. But yeah, it's always patient first going from there. Yeah. What's patient the first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Patience first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that are going to be like our cheer every time. Don't tell everyone our cheer, guys. <laughs> We're going to wrap this one up for tonight. Um, and uh, we look forward to speaking again with you guys. Thanks. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our episode today. We'd like to extend a special thank you to Zahid Damani for producing and editing our episodes, as well as for our beautiful website. Kasim Harani for the music, and Nishan Sharma for all of his support getting us up and running. Thank you also to our financial sponsor, Dr. Srini Chari. If you liked this episode, please let us know by clicking like and subscribing to our podcast. You can find It's Not All About Death on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform for podcasts. You can also find our episodes and connect with us anytime by visiting our website at itsnotallaboutdeath.com or on Instagram at It's Not All About Death.